Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today's guest is the phenomenal Sarah Corbett, founder of the Craftivist Collective, which is a community of people who are using craft to encourage positive change in the world. Sarah's been involved in activism since she was very young and went on to become an award-winning campaigner and work with charities like Oxfam and Christian Aid. But, as is the case with many of the best pirates out there, there came a moment of reckoning when the path that she was on didn't feel right, and in that tension there was actually space for her to create something new and brilliant. And since founding the Craftivist Collective, which now has thousands of members, she runs workshops, has written two books, most recently, How to Be a Craftivist, The Art of Gentle Protest, and in February 2021, she was featured on the BBC programme Craftivism, Making a Difference. So welcome, Sarah. That was quite impressive. And we're really, really happy to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. I'm trying not to cringe on my seat having my coffee. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on, <laughs> on reading out intros. <laughs> Thank you. And you're joining us from North London. I'm East London, baby. I'm Haggerston. Yeah, on a busy main road. So you might hear lots of sirens, but I like the hustle and bustle. It reminds me of growing up in Everton with the hustle and bustle. So I like it. Hackney would be the spiritual home of craftivism, surely, anyway. Oh, totally. Yeah. So I thought we could get started today. This is why I wove this into the introduction, to maybe start by telling the audience a little bit about your journey to craftivism, but maybe in that point where you started to feel some tension with the kind of journey you'd been on being an activist all your life, and then deciding that actually there was something different you could do so how did that all come about for you very reluctantly I don't like (laughs) 
attention to me and I don't like doing something differently I'm a bit of a goody two-shoes so when you asked me to be on the podcast I was like pirates I'm not a troublemaker I'm not one of these you know crazy innovative people I'm very much like I want to do everything by the rules and be very like do everything well but I don't like doing new stuff but it just happened because I did start doubting activism my craftivism journey was quite clear of the summer of 2008 I was going on a train journey to Glasgow which takes five hours I was working for the UK Department for International Development at the time and we were doing lots with young people 18 to 25 year olds so I had to go up to Glasgow and I'd moved to London about a year before then for the job and I joined lots of activist groups because I was like, these are my people, I really care about all these different issues, I'm going to make friends in activist groups, because it's been part of my whole life. But I'm an introvert, I don't like performing on stage or dressing up particularly, and I joined lots of groups that were really creative, but I didn't think they were very strategic. So I remember joining one group where they bought a tank to drive to the arms trade fair, and we had a meeting about it. And I remember I was the only one in the room saying, hang on a minute, like, what are you going to try and do? We're going to shut down the arms trade fair. And I was like, I don't think you are because there's more than one entrance and tanks are slow. And then they were like, it'll be great, you know, it'll be a spectacle. And I was like, you know, isn't there potential that it just looks like an advert to buy a tank at an arms trade fair? Like, I was the only one being a bit of a Debbie Downer. And I just thought, actually, it felt a little bit like you just wanted to ride around in a tank and activism was your excuse to do it. And then other groups where it was more like just get as many signatures on petitions as possible from people. And, you know, we just need their signatures. I didn't like the feeling of treating people like robots and not having genuine, thoughtful conversations with them, especially about things like climate change 10 years ago when it was very new to people and you did have to explain it a bit more. It was all about doesn't matter about having a conversation with them you just need their signatures and then in my job as well helping people be you know effective global citizens and engaged in politics and engaged in campaigning I just felt like a lot of it was so transactional and there was a lot of talk of us against them and all politicians are corrupt my mum's a politician she's not corrupt yes she is surrounded by some corrupt people but I just thought that's not helpful it's not going to build relationships with power holders so I ended up with all these questions and I was doing too much as an activist in my spare time and in my job. It was a big three-year differed project that was amazing and we got to create it from scratch really, but it was exhausting and I just thought I'm burning out and I'm burning out because I'm doing too much, but what I'm, I'm just reacting, I'm doing lots of stuff, but I don't think it's strategic and I weirdly picked up a cross-stitch kit in a little shop in East London <laughs> for a fiver of a teddy. When I was little, I loved to paint and draw. And on this five-hour train journey to Glasgow on a Pendolino train, I knew that I'd feel too travel sick to read or write my reports. I missed using my hands. I knew I couldn't do watercolours on the train because it would make a mess. But I wanted to be creative and use up the time because I can't sleep on trains either had no idea it would help my activism, but as soon as I separated the thread on the train, it slowed me down, it made me aware of how shaky my hands were, how shallow my breath was, which I'd never made time to even notice or acknowledge, and every activist group I'd been part of, and even in my job helping people be activists, we'd never said, how are people feeling like people do now? It was always, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, very reactive. 
So I noticed that actually these big scary questions of could I be an activist when I believe in activism and I want to be an activist, I'd go into this downward spiral of maybe I can't and then think about something else, but using my hands in a productive way, doing repetitive hand actions with sewing and separating thread and having the comfort of handy crafts helped me really reflect quite critically and deeply about how I could be an effective activist how would it feel if I was a politician being screamed at from a megaphone and all of that stuff and the people opposite me started asking me what I was doing and I was cross-stitching a design of a teddy but my immediate thought with my background and passion for change was oh if only I was cross-stitching a quote by Gandhi about inequality we could talk about it so I sort of jumped from this process really helps me not be reactive but think more strategically and empathetically that by making something people are asking me what I'm doing and isn't that interesting because we know that then they're more likely to listen than me force my opinion on people and then I suddenly had these idea of maybe I could cross stitch little mini banners instead of big banners as street art maybe I could make gifts for power holders so I googled craft and activism as a typical millennial thinking maybe some other people are doing this stuff and I didn't know the word craftivism existed but it did that there wasn't any projects I could take part in or groups I could join and a lot of craftivism out there was more people knitting and people saying you know the personal is political but not very focused campaigns so the woman who coined the word craftivism said anyone can use it you know it's a bit like punk music you know punk you've got all these different bands with different sounds and different looks but they're under that banner and craftivism I think is the same so I just started on my own tinkering around because I just thought I have so many doubts about a lot of activism but I don't want to give up on it I want to find other tools to add to the activism toolkit and craft handicraft so not woodwork or ceramics or but handicraft as in sewing and paper craft the more I got into it, the more I was like, this element could help with activism. This element could. The quietness, the slowness, the intriguingness, the, the textures, the fonts, the colours. There was so much that I just wanted to test and try out and see if it could be useful in activism. Does that make yeah. sense? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And it's a beautiful story. And I think would speak to so many people because there's a question about then that therefore with such a different take on activism can it be as successful as like the dominant narrative does it lead to change you know activism i think there are different examples of it really working and sometimes it going too far but i'm sure we'll go in that direction but there's something that i hadn't thought about until you just said it which you use the word introverts called yourself a debbie downer i was reading yesterday there's this really good statistic about 60 percent of the uk population would term themselves as shy and there's a spectrum of three types of shyness with debilitating shyness being the extreme end of it and what made me really realize was like the amount of hidden talent because it's always the same people who were shouting it's always very clearly a particular archetype of change is you know and even the word activist itself you know all conjures up a certain kind of i think that's changing now but yeah there's a default of what we imagine an activist to be yeah but like, what have you found in terms of like semantics, narrative, words you've used to grow this community for people who feel like they can be part of it? And then how do you talk gently about or confidently about being gentle? Because like those are the words you use and you use them really well together. 
I've been doing this, what, 12 years now, which sounds crazy. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. But at the beginning, you know, I'm part of activist groups, part of the charity sector as a campaigner. At the beginning in 2008, 2009, there was whispers in the sector because it's quite small in international development. People saying, I heard you're doing this weird cross-stitchy sew-any thing. What's all that about? And I was like, oh, I'm just trying stuff out, you know. And then I set up this blog trying stuff out and people around the world wanted to join in and it was interesting because not so much now but still a little bit now you have people going what you're telling people to be gentle like this is an urgent issue we need to be powerful and we need to be strong and I'm like yeah but if you were on the receiving end of someone throwing a milkshake in your face you're really going to listen to them you might even agree with them but look at the neuroscience and look at psychology I look at a lot of positive psychology as well of how do people change their hearts and minds how do they get on board with being part of making a change it's not by naming and shaming them you know we know all this from Brownie Brown and everyone you know forget about me like what's the change we want to see and how do we encourage and support people to make those power holders to make change and a lot of it's very counterintuitive you know if we're angry about something we want to react we want to scream we know innately that that doesn't work when it comes to your family or your colleagues you know we'd never sit in a meeting with your colleague and have a tantrum Yet, I find it quite frustrating that in activism, we have to encourage tantrums and it creates more division, more polarisation. And if we do genuinely care about the issue, we need to serve the cause and be a bit more emotionally intelligent and channel our anger into something more effective. I always say craftivism is to add to the activism toolkit. It's not to replace other forms. We still need marches, but I think we need to be really clear on what our demands are and not just have a scream or confuse and demands. We still need petitions, we still need lobbying, all of those different tactics we need. But for me, and what gets me up in the morning is I think we need a gentle protest approach, which is treat people how you want to be treated. Sometimes it's better to whisper in someone's ear than to scream at them in front of the public. Sometimes it's better to do indirect influence where they think they've come up with the solution rather than you have. Like I'm always thinking the opposite of what the default is. If the default isn't working or if the default is excluding people, like you said, Sam, like introversion is different to shyness, but I'm also quite shy. I get very anxious. So most of my audience are similar to me, which is normal with any movement. People like attracts like. But I will say to shy people, Craftivism is brilliant because you can make something beautiful in your house with your craft of thought questions I give people to reflect on. You can post it in a lovely envelope, spray some perfume on it, put some ribbon in it or something and send it to a power holder. No one needs to know on Twitter or Instagram that you've done it or you can share it on Twitter and Instagram, but you can do it in a way that does help you through that anxiety or if you're housebound or if you burn out easily as an introvert like this is a really useful form of quiet activism that is just as needed as the loud stuff we need both and I wouldn't be doing gentle protests craftivism and non-craftivism I wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work so I'm really proud to say it does work you know we have got evidence of it helping people change their hearts and minds we've had you know the chair of the board of Marks and Spencer say they wouldn't have given a pay increase to be in line with the living wage to 50,000 of their staff without the beautiful handkerchiefs we made them to say, don't blow it, use your power for good. We've had WWF use my 10-point manifesto to change a law in Spain to protect migrating birds. Like, I wouldn't do it if it didn't work. And every day I'm trying to 
hone my craft in craftivism and gentle protest that doesn't include craft to make it even more effective. Like that's what drives me. I had two meetings this morning with different activist groups and um, one disability group in a council and one that do national work on autism. And it was always about, yes, you're excited about the craft, but make sure the craft is not the taskmaster. It's the tool to serve your activism. So it's really hard, my work, because I'm like, if you love craft, this is helpful, but make sure craft isn't what's leading yet. And if you have never done craft before, this is still something that's really accessible. It is about how do we serve the bigger picture. I think my work does help, you know, sometimes indirectly, sometimes directly, sometimes complementing other campaign tactics, sometimes on its own. You know, we live in such a messy world. Activism is complex and messy, and we've got to be juggling lots of strategies at the same time but it does work otherwise I wouldn't do it and you wouldn't be talking to me if it didn't work I probably would just because I like hearing you talk but yes nonetheless that's fucking impressive it's good to have those impact stories to hand it does help and well yeah and if it didn't work I'd hope that people around me would say is if you really want to make positive change in the world is this the best use of your time and I'd be like yeah good point maybe I will go be a politician or go be a charity leader or something you know we've all got to ask those questions of if something's not working do we either need to drop it or tweak it who do you look to because change is often quite exclusive really and it's part of the problem with it because partly I think you get those archetypes partly there's a you know a a, a movement partly different things happen at different times so we often end up you know rewriting the rules of something or creating change but not bringing everybody with you and Alex you know has helped me with the pirates idea one of the key things she taught me was if you're going to write new rules everybody needs to be in the room who do you look to as, as inspiration who, who else is out there that's kind of got a similar level of accessibility that everybody is involved in what comes next who inspires you I'm gonna say the obvious but it's true like I constantly reread Martin Luther King Jr's book of essays and sermons because I just think he was so incredible I've got a tattoo saying tough minds, tender heart, because that's what change makers need. And he's so philosophical. He links back to psychology all the time and different philosophers and different religions. So I often think, what would Martin Luther King do? And he had his core group in the civil rights movement, and it was important to have that core group. But it was about how to make this in a loving way, who to target, how to target them in a bespoke way that was engaging to them. I look at artists in a lot of my craftivism. I use as many senses as possible. So all of our workshops, we have lavender smell that has a bit of cinnamon and, and vanilla in there as well so people don't fall asleep. But the sense of smell is incredible to make people feel safe. And if we need to change ourselves, none of us like change even if we're doing something bad. We need to feel like we're in a safe space to make a change. And if we're engaging power holders, I want it to be intimate. So we make sure that all of the text is lowercase and it's cursive writing. So it's curly, it's small. So I use a lot of the senses. So I read a lot about fonts. <laughs> I read a lot about colours to use, shapes to use. I love music. So we have instrumental music at all of our events. But I also have a gentle protest playlist with lyrics that are all nonviolent language lyrics and really hopeful, positive protest songs that I share with people. So I just gather lots from different places. This sounds awful and I don't want to diss anyone. But a lot of the creative activism out there, I just, I just see a lot of ego and a lot of showing off. And I just think as soon as you hint at showing off, you're going to lose a lot of people. It's funny with craftivism because 
my stuff is really not as popular as a lot of other craftivism. You know, it's, if you want a big following, I should be crocheting voodoo dolls of Donald Trump and other dictators that will get loads of likes, will be shared in lots of media. Everyone will have a laugh. It's nice and simple. But you're focusing on personality, not policy, which is not effective. It's polarizing people who might not agree with you. It's cruel. It's unkind. It's not helpful at all. We need to be focused on policy. How can we all be part of that change? Some cross stitches of, you know, make tea, not war will get more likes and more accessible to people. But I'll be thinking, well, what war and how can make tea help stop war? And can we be more realistic here? Can we be more focused on? So a lot of my stuff is not as popular. And in lots of ways, I do lots of training and consultancy where the conclusion is don't use craftivism. You need to work more on your relationship with this power holder. So use this language or a lot of my work behind the scenes is not physically, you know, aesthetically creative. It's the groundwork. And then you add on the fun craftivism ideas. I'll have millions of craftivism ideas, but really, you know, you just got to focus on what's the change you want to see? Is that change realistic? Who are the power holders who have that power and the decision makers? Can we influence them? If they don't want to listen, who do they listen to? Can we influence them? It's always starting from that campaign strategy. And then you look into what colors should we use? What textures should we use? What sensors? All of that stuff comes at the end. But there's something that you said that I really like to ask you to break down because I think it would be incredibly practically useful to listeners, to me. And it was the point about the kind of aphorisms versus authenticity. You know, it's such a difficult trap. I found this, you know, and I discovered this working in social enterprise and activism change makers. You know, there's a there's a Banksy quote of something about, you know, the most dangerous people are the ones trying to change the world because it's so filled with ego. Yeah. My mentor once said to me, you know, show me a social entrepreneur and I'll show you someone with father issues. And it's like me and everybody else we know trying to put the world to rights. And I fell into this track with Be More Pirate, totally. I partnered up with some brilliant people, but they're all about kind of inspirational quotes. And I did loads of them, I got loads of followers, really, really fueled my ego. And then just hated myself and had to like disassociate from it for ages. And, and now there's loads of people just who must be really disappointed following the, the real me talking <laughs> shit. Um, I love the real you, Sam. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I like the real me. That's it. I've, I've finally grown up. Like I must have grown up slightly to actually like the real me rather than the neurosis of trying to project a me that I'm not. Woohoo. But getting there has taken me 45 fucking years, right? So in, you said in four minutes, you have a piece about how to unpick your ego. And you said it as you do with everything you've said, so deceptively and disarmingly, charmingly, simply. But that is such a hard thing to do. How do we not get trapped? We found that with all the rule-breaking stuff we do, the biggest rule everyone gets back to is their own self-limiting beliefs, which start from a place of ego. Yeah. How do you really break that down for people, me included? Again, this is where I'm like, this is common sense. You read about well-being and mental health. Take your ego out of stuff. You're much better brain and mental health and you're not as anxious because you're not involved in it. So especially with people who get very anxious, so I did a talk yesterday for the Eden Project with these people on a six-week course. And a lot of it was like, I want to do stuff, but what if people think badly of me? Or what if I make people feel bad? Or I'm like, take yourself out of it. What change do you want to see? Where can you be of service to that change? Where can you not be of service and ask other people to do the role that you might not be able to do? And if there's anything in the campaign about you, Take it out because that's what's stressing you out, isn't it? It's stressing you out of how you're seen, how you're perceived. What if you say something wrong? If you remember that you're a conduit to try and make some positive change, it's not about whether you fail or succeed. It's about whether something is progressed or not. If a power holder suddenly says 
two weeks after you've had a chat with them, if they say in public, I've got this really great idea to have renewable energy on the roofs of our town hall, and you think to yourself, oh my word, I told them that two weeks ago, and they went, oh, that's interesting. Celebrate that, but you don't have to tweet it to say, I told them that two weeks ago. Doesn't even matter. Celebrate the fact that that's what they've said, and you can tweet them and say, well done you, what a great idea. Like, you just take yourself out of it. I know that when I turn into a perfectionist, a lot of it is around social media at the moment, especially of what if I'm cancelled with cancel culture? What if I say something that's taken the wrong way? You know, so much of our activism has been, I think it's changing now, but has been very binary. You're wrong, I'm right. Social justice is clear, it's black and white. A lot of the time it's not. There's loads of grey areas Someone might have a really good point in 1% of what they've said and 99% is really toxic, but they've got something there that you can say, okay, I can see the truth there, but also here's my truth, but it's also wrapped in ego. There was one thing that you mentioned, Sarah, I think it was in a previous interview where you talked about the slowing down aspect and focusing on your cross stitch and how it enabled you to reflect and start to ask yourself uncomfortable questions. I was wondering if you could break that down a bit, because it's a something that we always ask uncomfortable questions to people in our workshops. And it's something that comes up every time when people start to think about how they could be pyreddits. There are questions on the table that need to be asked that are constructive, but difficult to phrase yeah. and express. So is there anything that you've learned through your process about how to do that effectively? Oh, yeah. I mean, we need to have uncomfortable conversations with ourselves and with others. So I'm always thinking if we need that, how do we do it in a way that is a safe space for people to delve into that without going on a downward spiral, without having anxiety, without getting depression, without the worst case scenario of suicide, self-harm. You look at crafts, find cell work, do incredible handicraft work with male prisoners in Wandsworth Prison. And a lot of their evidence is how it helps with anger management, depression, you know, because you're using your hands. So I love using craft in some of my activism because people to think about using their head, hands and heart together. If you're just too heady, you get caught up in your own thoughts. If you're too emotional and about the heart, you can't think strategically. But both of them, using your hands, we know things, you know, there's lots of studies from Harvard and everywhere saying, if you're in a meeting, it's helpful to doodle because it actually helps you engage in the issue more by doodling and make notes. We know that by using your hands in a repetitive way while you're thinking, it calms you down. By seeing every stitch that you've done, subconsciously or consciously you're making a physical impact so you're much more likely to feel empowered that you are making a difference because you can see that you're making an impact you know an actual physical thing in the world so all of that stuff just very subtly helps you using your hands in a productive way helps you not go on a downward spiral I have craft of thought questions with all of my craftivism projects it's quite unique I don't know any other craftivism projects that do that and I keep nudging people to do craft of thought questions which you either look at on your own or as a group you can facilitate it and they're juicy uncomfortable challenging questions like what are your values and are you threading them through this object for whatever the objective is for it are you threading it through your life and you can think about that on your own while you're crafting or as a group you can say Yeah, so, you know, if we are campaigning for a cleaner, greener world, 
where's my energy come from if I'm asking other people to change their energy providers? Because you're physically making something, and again, aesthetics is important. It's not a coincidence that all my branding is a warm yellow. Yellow is a very hopeful colour. It's a warm yellow rather than a cold yellow because it's more active, but it's not garish red that makes you just think, alarm bells, alarm bells. You know, I use tablecloths in our workshop that have flowers on because if you see a flower you're more likely to tap into your intrinsic values than your extrinsic values because it reminds you of nature and organisms. I have grapes on the table for people to have those uncomfortable questions so that there's a sense of community. Even if I've got enough embroidery scissors in the shape of birds for everyone, I make sure people only share one between two and I hide the scissors in my suitcase so that people have this sense of community, especially with people they might disagree with. So while you're crafting, I create these safe, intimate spaces as much as possible so that asking the uncomfortable questions is done in a respectful and an empowering way than doing it in a room that's not full of lovely smells and lovely colours and future, you know, solution-focused stuff. I think it's actually cruel to sit in an ugly boardroom meeting and say to people, let's ask uncomfortable questions. I think we've got to be really careful with people's mental health. And it comes back down to that how do we make change in ourselves? We only do it if we feel like it's safe to do. So how can you use all of the elements of the world that make us feel joyful and safe and hopeful and solution focused? How can we use all of that to then wrap around us in like a comfort blanket so we can go even deeper with these uncomfortable questions? Because we need that balance, if that makes sense. It makes loads of sense. You've touched on a few things. You talked about the psychology and neuroscience of all of this. And then the one part in your manifesto we haven't really touched on is the, um, the, the piece around contemplation and deeper reflection. What you've just described there is emotional experiential design. And I hadn't completely appreciated all of that. And just before we started recording, you were showing us a, a 1920s pincushion um, and this like deep appreciation this almost like zen-like meditative appreciation of the detail that you've got and therefore you seem to be able to see and understand the detail in so many other things and I found all my pirate radio tapes and I was going to get them digitized and then instead I went and bought like a 20 year old tape recorder and I've been dancing around my kitchen re-inhabiting the emotional experience of 20 years ago and how much I loved it and the energy it gave me but you you sound like you're naturally instinctively in that space you sound like you're scientifically informed in that space you sound like you're using that space to bring about change like you said go deeper can you go even deeper on that what's your knowledge around it how much is that part of your work and, and why and how effective is it I mean I'm an absolute geek on everything I look at I love going to films and theater and you know it's very experiential because I did a project with Secret Cinema with Shawshank Redemption where that taught me a lot about experience and I loved punch drunk theater and I love arts and I love creativity and I'm always looking at it through the lens of what elements could be really helpful in activism, whether it's helping people ask those uncomfortable questions, whether it's one of our projects is a dream making project because Martin Luther King had a dream. It was very helpful for him to have that dream to focus on when he was having a bad day. But also we know that people love his I have a dream speech because they can imagine his kids being treated by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. You know, we remember stories, which both of you are so brilliant at the storytelling aspect of change making. I'm always nitpicking, like whether I'm reading a science book, or whether I'm reading a book about Buddhism, you know, I'm always looking at 
what elements can be useful in activism, what does help change people's minds, change people's hearts, what makes things memorable, and then I just make loads of notes. <laughs> so, you know, I love the fact that one neuroscientist told me how I didn't realise, but my handkerchiefs, which you make bespoke for power holders to say, don't blow it, use your power for good, and build a relationship with them. They said, you know, that's a good surprise rather than a bad surprise, that creates dopamine. But I said, well, yeah, I think I knew it, created dopamine but they explained in more detail to say most activism is bad surprises it's show up and do a demonstration or a, a flash mob or throw something at someone or you know scream at something they're surprises but whoever receives that immediately physically your body makes a note of Sam has just scared me with this bad surprise I never want to speak to Sam again because he's made me feel unsafe if Sam gave them a gift or said to them, you know what, I really like the way you did that thing, can we talk about this? Anything that creates dopamine in the other person, their body goes, ooh, mental note, Sam's lovely and makes me feel good and creates dopamine, I'll speak to Sam in the future. So our hankies are brilliant because whether people realise it or not, their body is telling their brain, that person made you feel good, you should have a meeting with them or you should listen to what they're saying. So we know so much in terms of how the brain works now, how colours work, how senses work. There's so much incredible arts and culture, especially in London. I'm very lucky to be in London to experience a lot of this stuff that I just think activism could be so much bigger and broader than what it is and much more positive and much more like how can we all be part of creating a more healthy, happy, harmonious world that Yes, there's sometimes where we do need to scream and shout, but I think that needs to be the, the last case scenario rather than the first, let's do that first. Wow, there's, there's so much wisdom in that. Isn't it just common sense of how we treat people well? <laughs> well, I always think the biggest <laughs> challenge that we're up against is that people always assume that there is a way that things are done um, and it's it's so inherited. And, we, and even if we intrinsically have that common sense ticker going off in our own heads going, this this doesn't quite feel right, but given that everybody else is doing it, I think I ought to yeah. follow suit. That sense of social Everyone, reaffirmation is huge. We're all busy. We've all got stuff to do. And, you know, we do need the marches. We do need the petitions. We need all of that stuff. Media, really like that. But I think we also need to remember activism's bigger than that. You know, if someone says something xenophobic at your bus stop, don't go home and make them a cross-stitch of something because you might never see them again. But do figure out, like, how could I challenge them in a way that they might hear it? Is it saying, whoa, that's a sweeping statement you just made, mate, where's that come from? Or, oh, that sounds like you've had a, a hard experience in that, tell me more. You know, figure out how you can gently challenge them and what they're doing by putting yourself in their shoes or reading about nonviolent communication. I feel like I'm not doing anything new. I'm just collecting lots of different things from different places and putting them together that maybe other people hadn't connected those dots. Yeah. I think that's the really interesting thing at the moment. Like, you know, I think it's a bit of a buzzword, but like the intersectionality of it all. And like you said, there are many essential aspects of, of activism that are still necessary and of change, you know. And oh, yeah. And it's a difficult balance, I think, at the moment, because there's a lot that needs to be done away with and a lot that needs to be protected. And sometimes those are the same thing. Yeah. You know, looking at democracy, the working model of it, that's got to shift. But the idea of it has got to be stronger than ever. 
So where you really see the natural synthesis, the skill of seeing patterns that you've got, that bringing together of science and creativity, these seem to be the really interesting overlaps that are going on around us. Not just because it's nice to see a collaboration, but because you bring those two minds, those two often one-dimensional outlooks. You know, here is my pragmatic approach to how we're going to make change, and here's my emotionally-led approach to how we're going to make change. And we used to be judgy about those two things, and now we can kind of understand that together this holistic approach is the only way that we as human beings are going to be less neurotic. Yeah, it's got to be holistic and it's got to be a balance. It's not one thing more than the other. I mean, here's my cheesy thing that I'm sure all you listeners have already heard in maybe a different context, but I do see activism like, like jails. You know, you can't be a good jazz musician without putting all the hours into your scales, into all the, you know, formula stuff, like you've got to have a real skill to then be able to riff and improvise and be an amazing jazz musician. You've got to gather all that knowledge. You've got to have a go at stuff and practice and practice and practice. And then you're a good jazz musician. You know, I'm a good activist and I do lots of meetings. I'm a bit meetinged out this morning (laughs) because I can say to people, well, what change do you want to see? Well, have you thought about this or what about that? I mean, My mum gave an ASBO to the CEO of Tesco, who in Liverpool bought lands that they wouldn't give to the council or to Sainsbury's to build a a supermarket that was really needed in our area of Everton. My mum was very clever at going, we're not getting anywhere, what can we do? And she was like, this is antisocial behaviour. One person runs Tesco. Could we give him an ASBO? We did happened really quickly he freaked out because of bad media straight away he released the land for Sainsbury's so you know I'm lucky that I've got those stories in my head but you know she couldn't have got to that point without really delving in and having those uncomfortable questions of how are we going to get to this but knowing that change happens in so many different ways you know the best chefs are people who've done the hard work hone their craft and then they're creative it's not a blank canvas. It's really, you know, a lot of the knowledge is power in it. Can we just say big up your mum? And one campaign will work for one person and it won't work for another. I mean, I remember with one campaign, I said, we can't get through to the CEO. So I found someone who knew him. And I said, what makes him tick? Do I go down the route of this is about your personal legacy as a CEO? And the guy said, Definitely not. He's against personal legacy. He hates it. He rose up from the shop floor. This is about him and his community of his employees. Whereas another CEO, you would definitely go down the legacy route because that's their motive. So we live in such a messy world. We're all unique individuals that are very complex. (laughs) So we have to know how change happens and know some of the formulas, but then we have to dance with activism. We have to, yeah, see it as jazz or see it as dancing. We live in such a world that's so fast paced, you know, Instagram didn't exist when I started doing craftivism. Now you got TikTok, you know, even with lockdown, this is going to change how we live and see the world. So we have to keep being innovative. But I think a lot of people think creativity is plucked from thin air. And I think all of us on this call know that, you know, it is just gathering lots of information, trying stuff, testing stuff, you know, seeing what works, what doesn't. It's a lot of hard slog, but it's also really fun. So, Sarah, I mean, we could talk to you for literally hours, I think. I think we could probably go into everything. No, no, no. I I love doing it. You know, before we round up, something for the audience. If people wanted to start to get involved in the Craftivist Collective and find out more about what you do, what what would be the first sort of step and, and where can we point people? 
Well, the obvious thing is go to the website, but I'm also like, the website's awful. It's really messy. There's a website, I've got a book, I've got kits and tools, I'm on social media. So whatever works for you, you can follow what we're up to. Listen to this podcast and other little videos, but um, just have a go, you know, get one of our kits, have a go. It might help spark ideas for your own projects whilst also learning how to do a bit of craftivism. So go on the website and it'll all be from there. Just sounds so much better with your accent, doesn't it? The southern, the southern craftivist. You know, did you, did you do that just to laugh, just just so you could laugh at us? Going, oh, can I be a craftivist? I did almost do it with craftivist because because my parents are northern, so they always pull me up yeah. on it anyway. Fabulous! That has been so informative, Sarah. Thanks, lovelies. <laughs>